0: Well, some of you may know that I have a uh, side gig um, working for the Augustine School here in town as a graphic designer. So it's been a, a great opportunity, and it's been very helpful financially. But there are times when it conflicts with ministry and doing ministry with Mission Saint James. So I'm a, a bit ashamed to admit to you that I drop the ball often. Don't tell anyone at the Augustine School. Well, as the year was wrapping up, I sort of um, decided to sift through my emails. Have you ever done this? You just kind of get caught up with your emails. I'm sifting through my emails, and I realized a few months ago, I I received an email from the head of school at Augustine School asking me to to, uh, participate in a project that was a little outside my wheelhouse. So I was supposed to coordinate with one of the teachers to get the sort of project up off the ground and going. Um, but as I'm going through my emails, I realized I completely forgot. So I, uh, if this has ever happened to you, the first thing that you do is you sort of panic, right? Start panicking. You try to figure out, okay, what, what did I, why, did, why did that happen? You start thinking about all the time that lapsed. And you're like, okay, what what are the best excuses to give, right, for, for forgetting this? And then... You know, I never do this, but you might do this. You sort of think of sort of little white lies that you can kind of tell to garner a little sympathy, you know. Um, but, but then the Holy Spirit speaks, right? And you realize, oh, I've got, to, I've got to fess up. I've got to take responsibility for my actions here. So the, uh, one of the last days I was picking the kids up from school, the, the teacher I was supposed to be coordinating with was in the uh, carpool line. And I thought, oh, no. So this is my chance. I've got, to, I've, got to, I've got to confess my sins, right? And I've got to uh, face, face the, uh, the penalties. Uh, but the, an amazing thing happened. Uh, I wasn't able to get my full apology out before she told me, oh, don't worry. That whole project's been scrapped. <laughs> 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 Woo! Woo! <laughs> This is a moment of grace, I would think, uh, would be a good way of saying that. A a significant experience of grace. Well, I tell you that story because the book of Romans is a book about God's extravagant grace. Among other things, Paul tells us in the first three chapters of the book of Romans that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, have dropped the ball To some extent, every human being has a basic knowledge of God's existence. And rather than respond to the creator's goodness and worship, we have fallen and worshiped the creature instead. That's Romans chapter 1. But even God's chosen people, the Israelites, will be judged for dropping the ball as well and obeying his commandments that he had given them. But the good news is that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law in Jesus Christ. That is St. Paul's words to us this evening in Romans chapter 3. So this summer we'll be walking through uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans, which is sort of his most extensive writing on the good news of the gospel. So I've sort of subtitled this series, What what we mean when we talk about the gospel. What what we mean when we talk about the gospel. Because nothing that we do at Mission St. James is worth doing if it's not an expression or an overflow of the gospel. So, since this is the case, it seems pretty important that we make clear what the gospel is and how it informs the life and ministry of Mission St. James. Well, the book of Romans was, we think, written around, give or take, a few years, around uh, 57 AD, and it was written at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. We know from the beginning of Romans that his intention was to preach the gospel there in Rome and go on, well, his intention was to go on to Spain. And he wanted to stop in Rome on his way through. In fact, he had hoped to gain support from the Roman church so that he could continue his ministry out into the West. So there's a problem that that Paul faced. Paul had never been to the church in Rome. So how would the Roman church know that he was worth supporting? How would they be uh, able to know what his message was? So it's probable that he wrote his letter to the Romans to prepare them for his arrival, and he wanted them to know the content of the gospel that he tends to preach in Spain, so that there could be no doubt that his work was worth supporting there's other reasons, of course, that Paul wrote the book of Romans, but it's the most, since it's the most, well, it is the most extensive treatment of his apostolic understanding of the gospel. Now, I know that many of you here are probably very familiar with the book of Romans. You've probably heard it preached many times, maybe attended a Bible study on the book of Romans. Not only this. But there are likely many of us who suffer from what I have heard called gospel fatigue. That as you hear the word gospel so much, it sort of has lost its meaning and kind of we've become a little bit deaf to it. And perhaps you've heard a million definitions of what the gospel is, and some of them even conflict with each other. So, do we really need another sermon? a whole series of sermons on the gospel? Well, it shouldn't surprise you that this priest would say, yes, we need another sermon series on the gospel, not to cheapen the word and not to redefine it in some new and novel way, but to return to it so that we can once again be amazed at God's grace to imperfect human beings like you and me so that we could give him thanks and praise for his continual love, and to share that love with others. And as you know, biblical orthodoxy is one of our core values. So my hope is not to provide you with my definition of the gospel, but to the best of my ability to illuminate the definition given to us in Scripture. So our lectionary readings through the summer begins uh, today in uh, chapter 3. So here Paul tells the Jewish and Gentile church in Rome that in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short or fall short of the glory of God. Now, this comes after two and a half chapters of pointing out the sinfulness of both Jew and Gentile. Both groups are under God's judgment and subject to death, Paul says. Even the Jews, who were God's chosen people, who had received the law, that is, the Ten Commandments and the moral and sacrificial and dietary systems that you find in the first five books of the Bible that we call the Torah, even the Jews had dropped the ball. And they were under God's judgment. So, this is bad news. And it's the bad news that has to precede the good news. And the good news is that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law in Jesus Christ. Now, there's great debate, and I think a good debate, on what Paul means by the phrase the righteousness of God. And I don't think we need to really get into the weeds of all of that here, but we could simply point out that what Paul speaks, when, that Paul speaks of two ways that we can see God's righteousness. And the first way is by looking at the law. Let's focus on the, just focus on the Ten Commandments. We understand that God set, he set a standard for human beings in the law and that we're judged by the standard, Right? And we also understand that this law reflects who he is. We're not to have any gods before him because he is the one true God. We are not to worship him alone. We are to worship him alone because he alone is worthy to be worshiped. We do not take his name in vain because his name is holy. We honor the Sabbath because he rested from the creation of the world. And on and on it goes. We are to be holy in this way because he is holy. That is, his righteousness is manifested in the law. But what's the problem with this? We cannot live up to the standard, can we? Even if we're impeccable in keeping one of the commandments, we're guilty of dropping the ball in all the other ones. So in this sense, the revelation or the manifestation of God's righteousness through the law does us little good. But Paul tells us that the righteousness of God has now been revealed apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. So when Paul says now, we are invited into a story and we occupy a particular place in that story. Later, in this, uh, in this passage, Paul will say that because in his divine forbearance, God passed over the former sins. He passed over here, uh, passed over here does not mean that he ignored them or that any sin committed before Jesus' death was no big deal. That's not what it means. It just means that God's intention was always to provide a solution for our predicament in his Son, And that the former sins, those committed by humanity before Jesus' death, would be dealt with on the cross. And this this is why he says that the law and the prophets all anticipated the righteousness of God that would be revealed apart from the law in Jesus Christ. Which is the second way that we can see his righteousness. So what's the difference What's the difference about the manifestation of God's righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ? Well, St. Paul will get to this in a later chapter. But at least it means that in Jesus Christ, we see the faithfulness to God that we all fall short of. In no way did Jesus fall short. He never dropped the ball, thank goodness. And for the first time in history of humanity... We can witness in the Gospels and in the story of Jesus's life and ministry, we can witness what it looks like to be absolutely faithful to God. But this raises the question, how does Jesus's righteousness benefit you and me? Let's look at verses 24 through 26. He says, we are justified by his grace as a gift. so that bad news, the Jews and Gentiles alike are alike under, are under God's judgment, is now met with some good news. So rather than cower under the, a standard of righteousness that we can never retain, we receive the benefits of a righteousness attained by Christ. But this is not a righteousness that Christ keeps to himself. Rather, it's a righteousness that justifies us. To say this term, justify, is debated would be an understatement. There are many things that divide Protestants and Catholics, for example, but it all starts here with this word, justify. And the question is whether the Greek word translated as justified means to make righteous or to declare righteousness. So the Catholic understanding says that God infuses Christ's righteousness into us and makes us righteous at our baptism. And Protestants insist that God imputes or credits Christ's righteousness to our account at the point of faith. So Paul talks about both of these realities. So the debate is usually about the relationship between our justification and what we understand as our sanctification, our, prog- our, our growth, our progressive growth in righteousness. But it's important to point out that Paul here is not concerned with our righteousness. He's talking about the righteousness of God manifested in Jesus Christ, which somehow results in our justification. At the very least, our justification is a declaration that we are righteous or just. And Paul tells us that this is a free gift of God's grace, that is, it is given, it is not earned. Now, don't, under, don't underestimate the significance of that fact. God's righteousness revealed in the law merely told us what we needed to do, right? It told The law told us what we needed to do to be justified. But God's righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ is just given to us. As a gift. I was off the hook in the carpool line that day, not because of something that I did, but because of something that has been done. And what exactly was done for us that resulted in this gift? Well, the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Well, Paul tells us in verse 25, the father put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, propitiation is a big theological term that just means an offering to appease God. An offering to appease God. So when we hear the word appease, we sort of think about the old Roman or the Greek gods who are always sort of angry like petulant children, Right. They're always uh, making a big fuss until human beings give them whatever it is that they want. But when Paul uses this term, he's referring back to what he had been talking about in the first two chapters of Romans. There, God is not a petulant child, but rather a patient and long suffering parent. Who has been forsa- a parent who has been forsaken by the very children that he loved. God's wrath should not be understood as petty or even tyrannical, but rather as a mistreated father whose love has only been returned with contempt. Appeasement or propitiation in this sense is about reconciliation. Like the prodigal son returning home, But in a poetic twist of irony, the father provides the means by which that reconciliation is possible. Which is the blood of his own son. God provides those means. We don't. And here we have the greatest and most beautiful mystery of all. That in the sacrifice of the son, the father is both both just and the justifier. Why? Why? Because through the crucifixion of Jesus, the spilling of his blood, Christ vicariously took upon himself the penalty, the damnation that we, his unfaithful children, deserve, thereby exercising his justice. So he maintains his justice. He is just. But in that very same act, he simultaneously justifies his children. They are no longer under his wrath, no longer under his judgment. God's righteousness manifested in his son results in our redemption. And this has been done without an ounce of obedience on our part. It is a gift freely given to us. And Paul says we receive it by faith. I'm well aware of my inadequacy of communicating the cosmic significance of this reality. And I'm also aware aware of a great amount of noise, both within the church and outside the church. The noise that obscures the beauty of this passage. There's a narrative out there that says, we've got it all wrong. We've got it all wrong. And we've been inundated with scholars and theologians and pastors and YouTubers who mistrust any notion that the gospel has been faithfully handed down to you and to me. Forget all you've ever been taught, they say. Paul didn't really mean wrath or propitiation or justify. And the gospel has been so confused with political agendas, both on the left and on the right. And I think I can speak for many of us here in saying that it's getting old. But we cannot let the noise force us to cover our ears. The same gospel that Paul preached and ultimately died for is just as beautiful today as it was 2,000 years ago. I'm not saying that we cannot or we should not ask questions of the scriptures to wrestle with the text and engage in theological discourse. We must do these things. But my burden is that we never lose sight of the simple beauty of the faith once delivered to the saints. Beloved, it is not so complex, not so nuanced, not so esoteric that you need a Ph.D. to understand it. And while we all need to correct our theological errors and misunderstandings, I'm betting that the gospel you believed when you first heard it is the same gospel that Paul longed to preach in Rome and Spain. We may have replaced it with prosperity or materialism or politics or something else. But if you're sitting in this room, chances are that it has changed your life prosperity does not do that politics certainly does not do not do that and so next time friends that you hear a hot new take on what the gospel is or what paul really meant or what jesus really did or did not say ask yourself is this the gospel that changed the world Is this the gospel that changed my life? Is this the gospel that the apostles and the martyrs died for? My hope is that as we spend the next couple of months in the book of Romans, we won't discover a new understanding of the gospel, but that our understanding of the gospel will be renewed. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would lead us, that you would guide us by your Spirit. Help us to see afresh and anew the old story, the ones that have been the, the story that has been handed down faithfully to us. And would you strengthen our faith in that story? Would you strengthen our assurance in that story? Lord, not that we could be arrogant out in the world, but that we could be faithful stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen.